Innalhamdalillah Nahmeduhu wa nasta'inuhu wa nasta'ughiruh Wa na'udhu billahi min shururi anfusina wa sayyati a'malina Man yahdihillahu falamudillalah Wa man yudlil falahadiyalah Wa ashhadu an la ilaha illallahu wahdahu la sharika la Wa ashhadu anna muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluh Amma ba'd. Today then we're starting into the chapter of menstruation. So this particular chapter, it will go through the various different rulings, the Islamic rulings connected to the menstruation. And so it's a chapter that is needed because it is connected to worship. The woman needs to know what the rulings are with regards to menstruation so that she can perform her worship in the correct way. The husbands, they need to know so that they can educate their wives and that they can be upon knowledge themselves. And so it's a chapter that is important and the rulings are important. Because your worship will depend on it when it comes to that issue of menstruation and that monthly cycle. So here then, Babul Hayl, the chapter of menstruation. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan, Hafizahullah Ta'ala mentions, هذا الباب يذكر فيه الأحاديث الواردة عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم في أحكام الحيض والاستحاضة وما يلزم النساء في ذلك فالحيض ذكر الله أحكامه في القرآن الكريم ذكر النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أحكامه في سنته فهو جدير بالعناية والاهتمام so in this chapter, the ahadith the, from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that speak about the rulings of menstruation <coughs> will be mentioned. And also the rulings regarding al-istihadah. That is the blood that a woman may get which is not menstruation blood. Other blood that occurs outside of the menstruation. And the rulings regarding that, because the rulings regarding that are different to the rulings regarding actual menstruation. And you will see that the rulings are mentioned in the Qur'an itself. And in the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, this indicates that these rulings and this chapter, this topic is an important one. It is an important affair such that Allah mentioned it in the Qur'an itself and the Messenger mentioned it in the sunnah. لأنه يعتري النساء 
المسلمات وقل أن تسلم منهم رأة فقد قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم إنه شيء قد كتبه الله على بنات آدم And so because this is something that affects the Muslim women Affects women And of course the Muslim women need to know the rulings of it And there are very few if any as a rarity or abnormality Who would not experience this Otherwise the women all experience this And it is like the Prophet said إِنَّهُ شَيْءٌ قَدْ كَتَبَهُ اللَّهُ عَلَى بَنَاتِ آدم. The Messenger said, It is something that Allah has decreed upon the women of mankind, the women from the humans, the females. Allah has decreed this upon them, that this monthly cycle occurs that this menstruation occurs. فَالْمَرْأَةَ تَحْتَاجُ فِي حَالِ الْحَيْضِ إِلَى مَعْرِفَةِ مَا يَلْزَمُهَا So a woman needs to know when that menstruation occurs, what the rulings are, and what she needs to do in terms of the religious acts. فَبَيَّنَ اللَّهُ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى ذَلِكَ فِي كِتَابِهِ وَبَيَّنَهُ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمَ فِي سُنَّتِهِ And so as we mentioned, Allah has highlighted that in the Qur'an and the Messenger has highlighted it in the Sunnah وَتَدَارَسَهُ الْعُلَمَ مِنْ وَقْتِ الصَّحَابَةِ إِلَى وَقْتِنَا هَذَا And the scholars, they studied into this affair from the time of the companions up until now and the reason why the Shaykh is giving all of this introduction into this chapter of menstruation is because the people of innovation, the people of desires and misguidance, they mock and belittle Ahlu Sunnah. And often, one of the phrases you hear from those individuals, from the people of innovation, from the misguided ones, the people of desires, they say that Ahlu Sunnah or the scholars of Ahlu Sunnah are scholars of menstruation. That's what they call them. Ulama'ul Hayri wa Nifas. They say, You are scholars, you Salafi scholars, they are just scholars of menstruation. What they mean by that is, they want to belittle the scholars of Ahl Sunnah, saying that these so-called scholars of yours, these Salafi scholars, they don't know anything about the real world. They don't know anything about the real world. All they know about is the rulings about menstruation and what a woman should do and what a woman shouldn't do. What's that got to do with the problems of the world and the Muslim world and the Muslims around the world? So they want to belittle Ahlu Sunnah and belittle the scholars by calling them scholars of menstruation blood. That that's all you know. Rulings about the menstruation blood. And you don't know about the world and what's going on in the world in reality. 
And that is a belittlement and an accusation against the scholars of Ahl Sunnah. The scholars of Ahl Sunnah, they are not as the people of innovation also claim and say from their abuse that these scholars are just sat in the deserts. They are sat in the deserts. What do they know about the UK? What do they know about the USA? Like Yasir Qadi and his likes have said for years, the scholars out there on their camels in the deserts, the Bedouins, what do they know about the reality on the ground in the USA? Have they experienced these things, what we experience? Have they seen it with their eyes? Have they come and intermingled here and seen the reality? What do they know? What do they know about our affairs? How are they going to give us fatwas and answers and religious guidance regarding our affairs? And they don't know anything about our affairs. And through that misguided logic, they aim to therefore cut off the scholars telling the people and their followers the scholars are just sat in deserts in the Middle East. How are they supposed to give you religious guidance and answers and fatwas about your affairs in Europe and USA? What do they know about our reality here? And so by doing that, they want to cut out the scholars and make themselves the scholars Cut out those scholars and make themselves therefore at the number one position. Because once you can remove the scholars of Ahl Sunnah from the picture, then you can put yourself as the number one. You can put yourselves as the people everybody returns to now. You can make yourselves the ulama and you can convince the people we know better of the reality that we live in here. We know better about the realities of the world. We know better about what's going on in the USA, in the UK, in Europe. What do they know on their camels, in their deserts, in the Middle East? And so the people are convinced into believing that those scholars, the people of knowledge, the ulama, they don't know and they can't really guide us and give us proper answers but these people, MashaAllah, Yasir Qadi and others, they are graduates and masters and PhDs and they are scholars too. But they have the extra benefit that they know our reality. So maybe they can give us better fatwas that are suitable for our situations. And so slowly, bit by bit, the scholars are completely cut out of the picture and they raise themselves basically into that position that they have now vacated by removing the scholars out of it. And so here, this is the reason why a Sheikh Al-Fawzan is giving this detailed or lengthier introduction into this chapter compared to other chapters because this is one of the types of abuse those opposers of Ahlu Sunnah they throw upon the scholars of Ahlu Sunnah you are just scholars of menstrual blood 
Rather we say menstrual blood and its rulings Allah spoke about it in the Quran And the Prophet sallallahu spoke about it in the Sunnah And you will see now all these narrations of the female companions Who spoke about this and asked about this And they were inquiring and wanting to know what the rulings are so Sheikh Al-Fawzan says this is something that has been studied from the time of the companions up until our time. Now, <clears throat> Al-Imam Ahmed said, Jalastu fi kitab al-hayd Eight years? Nine years, Tis'a Sanawat, Hatta Fahimtu. Al Imam Ahmed said, I studied this chapter, I looked into it and researched into it for nine years until I understood it. For nine years, he was looking into these issues looking into these narrations because some of the affairs do become complex when the women they say but what about this and what about that color blood and then this blood happened and the menstruation started then it stopped and then there were spots of blood and all of these complex issues they arise as as Shaykh Al-Thaymeen said it becomes complex with all of the scenarios and all of the the different types of situations the women describe regarding this blood. So Al-Imam Ahmed, he mentioned he studied for years into this topic until he understood it. وَعَقَدُوا لَهُ بَابًا فِي كُتُبِ الْعِلْمِ And the scholars, they put specific chapters in the books of knowledge about it, as you see Al-Hafidh ibn Hajar, Al-Asqalani, rahimahullah ta'ala, doing right here in this book, Bulugh al-Maram, a specific chapter for the menstruation and its rulings. وَلَكِنْ مَعَ الْأَسَفِ الشَّدِيدِ فَإِنَّ هُنَاكَ أُنَاسًا مِنَ الْمُثَقِّفِينَ وَمِنَ الَّذِينَ يَدَّعُونَ الْفَهَمْ والحفق ومعرفة أو معرفة فقه الواقع فإن من هؤلاء من يستخف برجال العلم This is what we've mentioned the Sheikh says with regret with great regret there are those people the مثقفين those individuals who think they are um, that they are modern and up to date and they are living in the in the in the current and now and they are up to date with developments of the world that they are the modern day man those people who believe themselves to be like that and they claim to be smart and they claim to have insight and intelligence about these affairs and they claim that they are the ones who know about the reality of the affairs going on not the scholars these types of individuals, the Sheikh says, They belittle, they belittle the men of knowledge, the men of real knowledge, 
who are the ulama, the scholars. They are the men of real knowledge. And it's amazing when you see the people do this. And they come along and they say, But a Sheikh Al-Fameen, he spoke about such and such a topic, but he's not an expert in that topic. What does he know about those affairs? I went and did a degree in this particular issue, in this particular branch of knowledge from the worldly branches of knowledge. How can a Sheikh Al-Fameen be speaking about that? I'm more knowledgeable than a Sheikh Al-Fameen in that topic. And yet they don't realize your knowledge in that topic no matter how much it may be no matter what level it's got to it's only going to be understood and applied within the framework of al-islam and so no matter how much knowledge you might have of a particular field that is going to be restricted because of your lack of knowledge of the Islamic basis to apply it into. And when we say the lack of knowledge of the Islamic basis, relatively speaking, that your knowledge of Islam is not going to be anywhere near a Sheikh Al-Athameen's knowledge of Islam, or a Sheikh Bin Baz, or a Sheikh Al-Albani, Rahimahumullah. Your level of knowledge is not to their level. And only somebody who has deceived himself would think that they are more knowledgeable than the likes of these mountains in knowledge. And so here the Shaykh says these types of individuals, they belittle the scholars as though the scholars don't know any of these affairs and don't know what's going on. And they belittle them by saying they are just scholars of menstrual blood and postnatal bleeding. وَمَا ذَلِكَ إِلَّا And that is only ignorance from them. Those who speak in this way, it is only ignorance from them. And Qadi is a prime example of all of this. As an example that people will have heard of. All of these things, they are practically all applicable to him. Claiming to be smart, claiming to be knowledgeable, claiming to be somebody who knows about the realities of the world and what's going on, knows about the USA and the West and the scholars they don't, and therefore positioning himself to be the one who is followed as opposed to the scholars. And so often you hear, the scholars, they will tell you time and time again, no matter what your level of knowledge you get to, you always return back to the scholars, return back to the ulama, return back to the people of knowledge. As Allah commanded you, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of remembrance, the people of knowledge, if you do not know and of course that is always going to be the case there is always going to be somebody more knowledgeable than you and so a person does not become deceived by himself and his level of knowledge or understanding but you return back to the scholars always 
فهؤلاء إن كانوا يقولون ذلك من باب الاستهزاء نعم the sheikh then carries on and he mentions more about these individuals who mock and belittle the scholars and claim that the scholars don't know what's going on in the world and that they only know these rulings of menstrual blood and then after that <coughs> he mentions فالحيض ذكر الله أحكامه في كتابه that Allah mentioned the rulings of menstruation in the Qur'an itself. And an example of that is Surah Al-Baqarah, Ayah 222. Two فَإِذَا تَطَهَّرْنَ فَأْتُوهُنَّ مِنْ حَيْثُ أَمَرَكُمُ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ التَّوَّابِينَ وَيُحِبُّ الْمُتَطَهِّرِينَ In this ayah, Allah tells us that they ask you, O Muhammad, addressing Muhammad, that they ask you, O Muhammad, about Menstruation. يَسْأَلُونَكَ عَنِ الْمَحِيضِ Allah says, they come and ask you, O Messenger, O Muhammad wasallam. they come and ask you about this menstruation. قُلْ هُوَ أَذَا Say, tell them that it is an impurity. It is an impurity. It is other. And so, فَعْتَزِلُوا النِّسَاءَ فِي الْمَحِيضِ Abstain from the women during their monthly cycle, meaning do not have intercourse. فَعْتَزِلُوا النِّسَاءَ فِي الْمَحِيضِ وَلَا تَقْرَبُوهُنَّ حَتَّى يَطْهُرْنَ And do not approach them, meaning for intimacy, for intercourse, until they have become pure meaning until they've done their ghusl at the end. Not just that the period has finished, but that they have finished and done their ghusl. Because there is a weak opinion that some scholars mention that when a woman finishes her period, even without making a ghusl, she is now pure and you can have intimacy or intercourse with her. And that is not the case. The case actually is that a woman becomes, uh, finishes her period and does her ghusl, that's when she becomes pure and that's when it is now permissible for the intercourse once again. So the ayah indicates that menstrual blood is impure. Menstrual blood is impure. والحديث يدل على أن الحائض طاهرة في بدنها لجواز لمسها وتقبيلها ومباشرتها وغير ذلك. But if the menstrual blood is impure, does that mean the woman is impure? That the woman is impure during her period. It does not mean that. 
The woman is not herself in some impurity, meaning that you cannot touch her, you cannot touch your wife, or that you could not kiss your wife. Permissible. When the woman is on the period, permissible. That type of general intimacy is permissible. The woman is not impure herself, but the menstrual blood is impure. The woman on her menstruation herself is upon purity. Her saliva, other affairs are pure. The only impurity is the actual menstruational blood. And as a consequence, that state means that a woman does not pray, does not fast, etc. So here there are two circumstances to remember. The first circumstance, أَنَّهُ لَا يَجُوزُ جِمَاعُهَا لا باغتسال ولا بغيره وهي حالة الحظ that when a woman is on her monthly cycle it is impermissible to have intercourse <coughs> even if she does a ghusl if she's on her monthly cycle during those days it is impermissible to engage in intercourse a person cannot say, a woman cannot say, but if she makes ghusl, then perhaps it's allowed. It is not allowed during and throughout all of the days of that period. The second circumstance though, the second scenario, When her menstruation stops, فَإِنَّ جِمَاعُهَا فَجِمَاعَهَا جَائِزٌ بِشَرْطِ الْإِغْتِسَالِ In that case now, it is now permissible to engage in intercourse with the condition that she now makes her ghusl after finishing the period. Once she has made her ghusl, after that monthly cycle, then it is now permissible for the intercourse and that is the position of the jumhur of the scholars there is a an opinion of al-imam abu hanifa that it is permissible to engage in intercourse after her period finishes even if she hasn't yet done the ghusl according to them the key thing is that her period has finished her period has finished. That's the key, they say. But the reality is that is incorrect. It is to do with the purification via the ghusl. Then the woman is upon that purity. It is not just about the period finishing. It is about the ghusl after that too. Linguistically then, Al-Hayd, all of that was kind of like an introduction. We haven't even got to the first hadith yet. Linguistically, Al-Hayd is a sayalan, which means to flow. Because of course, the blood, it flows during the period. And Islamically speaking, that, that there was the linguistic definition. 
linguistically al-hayd menstruation it means to flow in the arabic language al-hayd and that of course makes sense the flowing of the blood so islamically speaking the definition is the flowing of that natural blood that exits from the woman during those known specific days and always notice that the islamic definition of anything is always the same as the linguistic definition but with some clauses the islamic definition of anything is always the same as the actual linguistic definition of that thing but with some clauses added in for example as-siyam coming up now next month inshallah ramadan as-siyam linguistically speaking means to withhold to withhold that's what it means linguistically sawm siyam to withhold from something linguistically if somebody isn't walking you can say they are fasting from walking somebody is silent they are fasting from speaking meaning they are withholding from doing those actions and so then the islamic definition it is the same it is withholding but there are some clauses added on it is withholding from the things that break your fast with an intention from the true dawn up until the sunset so always in fiqh when you look at definitions and there are always definitions in every subject in fiqh you have the linguistic definition and then the islamic definition which is the same but with some clauses added in so now then we come to the first hadith hadith of aisha radiyallahu anha عن عائشة رضي الله عنها قالت إن فاطمة بنت أبي حبيش كانت تستحاض فقال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم إن دم الحيض دم أسود يعرف فإذا كان ذلك فأمسكي عن الصلاة فَإِذَا كَانَ الْآخَرُ فَتَوَضَّئِي وَصَلِّي رواه أبو داود والنسائي وصحها وابن إحبان والحاكم واستنكر وبحاتم In this narration reported by Aisha رضي الله عنها She said that Fatima the daughter of Abu Hubaysh used to have istihaba blood um, the istihadah it is a blood that exits from the woman but it is not her monthly cycle it is not her period you have a name for it? there is, there is a name for it uh, I edited the book in the translation now I forgot now they have a name for it in English huh? intermenstrual bleeding yeah yeah that's possible intermenstrual bleeding uh, that's possible 
So it's basically a bleeding that occurs from the woman, but it's not her period. That is known as istihada. Istihada. So it's mentioned about Fatima bint Abi Hubaysh that she used to have this istihada that she used to get bleeding occurring outside of her period. It wasn't her period. It was other blood that used to exit from her. So the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said to her that indeed the blood of menstruation is black and known. Black meaning that it is a dark color, not actual black, but a dark color, a dark red. It is a dark color. فَإِذَا كَانَ ذَلِكَ فَأَمْسِكِ عَنِ So the messenger said to her, if it's that one you experience, that dark blood that you experience, then stop praying. Because that is of course, your period blood. فَإِذَا كَانَ الْآخَرُ But if it's the other type, فَتَوَضَّئِي وَصَلِّي Then make wudu and pray. Carry on praying. So here now, there is going to be a discussion about this intermenstrual blood. يعني يخرج منها الدم في غير أوقاته And that is when blood exits from the woman outside of her normal monthly time. فأتت النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم تسأله ماذا تفعل بسبب هذا الدم الذي يخرج في غير وقته. So Fatima bint Abi Hubaysh came to the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم to ask him what do I do? This blood that exits from me, which is outside of the normal period that I have, what do I do regarding this? What are the Islamic rulings? Is the ruling of this extra blood outside of the period the same as the period? That the woman cannot pray, she cannot fast, cannot have intercourse. Or does this extra bleeding, this intermenstrual bleeding, have a different ruling? So she came to ask. She came to the messenger to find out. And so the Prophet ﷺ gave her a comprehensive answer. And he mentioned to her, إِنَّ that the <coughs> menstrual blood is dark. The color of it is a dark color. As opposed to the intermenstrual bleeding, the bleeding that may occur at some other time in the month, not the monthly cycle, not the period, that type of blood will typically be of a lighter reddish complexion. That will be of the... the more red type of blood whereas the period blood is a much darker color so the messenger highlighted to her this difference 
if you see it as the dark color, then stop praying, meaning that's your period. But if you see it as the, the reddish color, the lighter reddish color, then in that case, that is not your period. Carry on, make wudu and carry on praying. You're not on your period with that one. So that is one difference between the menstrual blood and the intermenstrual blood. And there are two other differences as well. The scholars, they mention there are two other differences to identify whether it is menstrual blood or the intermenstrual blood, the extra blood that may occur outside of your period. So one is the color that's been mentioned here. If it's the dark color, it's menstruation. If it's the light color, more of a red, then it's not menstruation. What are the other two things that can identify it? The smell is one. The menstrual blood has a smell that is not favorable, a very unfavorable smell to the menstrual blood. Whereas the other blood, the other type does not have that smell to it. The other type does not have that smell. And the third difference in the actual blood itself. Uh-huh. The third one is regarding the fact that the menstrual blood has a more thick type of consistency, whereas the other blood has a light type of consistency in the, the makeup of it. So these three differences are mentioned because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us to worship him. And we will all be held accountable on the day of judgment for our worship. And so if a woman cannot worship properly because she doesn't understand the rulings, or the husband himself doesn't understand these rulings, and so he tells his wife incorrect fatwas, and his wife doesn't pray because the husband thinks it's menstruation, and he tells her it's menstruation, and so she doesn't pray, and become sinful for missing her prayers, or they think that it is not menstruation, and she's praying when she shouldn't be praying. And Allah has told us, I did not create jinn or human except for them to worship me, and we will all be held accountable upon our worship. And that's why the companions, the best of this Ummah, the companions, the women, they were not shy about going and asking the Prophet about these affairs of menstruation. They were not shy because they wanted to learn their religion. They wanted to make sure that they were worshipping Allah and they were striving for paradise. Unlike those who do not give importance to their religion, and they do not give importance to the rulings, and they do not care if they are getting it right or wrong, and they do not understand the importance of these rulings. 
then that is a calamity for them. So the messenger highlighted that difference of the color, but there are those other two differences that are also highlighted. So the messenger said to her, if it is the darker color, in that case, then leave the prayer. Do not pray then. But if it's the other type, which is the reddish color, then that is al-istihadah. Then in that case, make wudu and pray. فَهَذَا الْحَدِيثِ أَفَادَ أَنَّ هُنَاكَ فَرْقًا بَيْنَ دَمِ الْحَيْضِ وَدَمِ الْإِسْتِحَاضَ مِنْ حَيْثِ الصِّفَةِ وَمِنْ حَيْثِ الْحُكْمِ Therefore, this narration highlights that there is a difference between the menstruational blood and the intermenstrual blood in terms of the descriptions of the two types and in terms of the Ruling on the two types With the menstruation blood The woman does not pray And she does not fast And she cannot have intercourse But with the other type of blood She can make wudu and she can pray Or she must pray And she must fast Then we'll do one more hadith to finish off on حديث أسماء بنت عميس عند أبي داود ولتجلس في مركن فإذا رأت صفرة فوق الماء فلتغتسل للظهر والعصر غسلا واحدا وتغتسل للمغرب والعشاء غسلا واحدا وتغتسل للفجر غسلا واحدا وتتوضأ بين ذلك in this narration of Asma bint Umais radiallahu anha, another one of the female companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, she narrates here, or it's mentioned in this hadith, that she was told to check, to check, the discharge by checking with water over a bowl of some nature to check that discharge and if that discharge had the sufra, that yellowy nature to its color on the surface of the water, then in that case this would indicate it is the intermenstrual blood. Ra'idha ra'at sufra fawqa al-ma' Ya'ani anna ala al-mustahada an takhtabira nafsaha Fathajlisu fi hadha al-ina' al-wasi' Thumma tasubbu al-ma' ala nafsiha Fa'idha ra'at sufra tan fawqa al-ma' Fa'yastihada Fa'innaha tagtasilu lil-dhuhri wal-asri Ghusnan wahida wa tagtasilu so when a woman tests herself or checks herself by pouring water over herself uh, in some place where the water can gather, and then if she notices that surface discoloration of the water to the yellowy tinge, 
then it would become known to her that this is the intermenstrual blood that is exiting. In that case, she makes a ghusl for dhuhr and asr. One ghusl and she prays dhuhr and asr. And then she makes ghusl again and prays maghrib and isha. <clears throat> and she makes a ghusl for fajr. That is therefore three that are mentioned in this hadith. In this hadith, it highlights three ghusls. But the other narration, the previous narration, the previous narration, the messenger had said if it was the inter, intermenstrual blood, then just make wudu and that was it make wudu and you can pray but this narration now is saying you've got to make ghusl one ghusl and you can pray your dhuhr and asr then another ghusl for maghrib and isha and then a separate one for fajr as well whereas the previous narration only said that you have to make wudu What is the combination between those simplistically? Is it a ghusl you have to do then or is it only wudu? Mm. So the first narration, the messenger said, make wudu and pray. In the second one, do a ghusl for dhuhr and asr, another one for maghrib isha, another one for fajr. This indicates that the ghusl is mustahab. If a woman is experiencing the intermenstrual bleeding, then it is mustahab. If she is able and it is not of difficulty upon her to make a ghusl and then she can pray her dhuhr and asr. And then another ghusl to pray maghrib and isha and another one for fajr by itself. But then, why only one ghusl for dhuhr and, maghr- and uh, asr? Maybe if you make the ghusl at dhuhr time, then two hours later by asr time, more bleeding has occurred. Why only one ghusl for those two prayers? Mm. So the scholars, they mention they can do a type of technical combining of the prayers, but it is not actually combining of the prayers. They call it jam'un suri. A combining, you combine the prayers, what looks like you're combining, but you're not actually combining. How can you be combining the prayers and it looks like you are combining the prayers, but you're not actually? By praying dhuhr right at the end time of dhuhr. So let's imagine these days, Dhuhr starts at 12.30 for example and finishes at 2.30 for example. If a woman then makes ghusl at dhuhr time, 12, 1 o'clock, whatever time, and then prays her dhuhr at 2.15 or 2.20, right at the end of the dhuhr time. And then when she finishes, there's barely going to be a couple of minutes, a few minutes, and then Asr time is going to come in straight away. 
And so as soon as she finishes her dhuhr, she basically just gets up and prays her asr. To a person looking at her and what she's doing, it's going to look like she's just combined her dhuhr and asr. But she hasn't. She prayed her dhuhr in the dhuhr time, but right at the end. And prayed asr in the asr time, but right at the beginning. And so it looks like she just prayed her dhuhr and asr together and combined them, but she didn't really. And the same with Maghrib and Isha. Pray the Maghrib, make the ghusl, and then pray the Maghrib right at the end of Maghrib time. And then as soon as you finish, it's basically Isha that starts straight away and you pray your Isha. So somebody looking at you now, what you're doing is, is going to think you've just combined your Maghrib and Isha, just prayed them both together now. So you've combined, but you haven't combined. You've actually prayed both prayers separately in their time. Maghrib in its time, but right at the end of its time. And Isha in its time, but right at the beginning of its time. So from the appearance, it looks like you combined between the prayers. But in terms of the reality of what you did, you didn't. You prayed each one in its time. Combining is when you pray one of the two prayers in the time of the other prayer. You combine two prayers, prayer one and prayer two. One of those two prayers is being prayed outside of its time. Like you combine Dhuhr and Asr at the time of Asr, for example. Or Maghrib and Isha at the time of Isha. So now Maghrib is outside of its time. That's what combining is. So here it's not actually combining. You're not taking any prayer out of its time. So that is what some of the scholars they say is mustahab if a woman is able to do that. And of course sometimes that could be a burden, it could be a difficulty. Having three ghusls a day could be a difficulty, it could be a burden. Especially when the weather comes with the coldness, cold weather, snow outside. It can be a difficulty. My car was stuck for a day. In the snow, in the hills, uh, across here from, uh, I forgot the names of the areas between here and Nelson, Skipton and those areas in the hills. I had to abandon the car for a day and it was cold. The blizzards when they come in the minus temperatures, I am not exaggerating. After I went home that day, I had to abandon the car and go. Still five miles from home, alhamdulillah, somebody gave me a lift afterwards, but... When I got home, it took an hour until I stopped shaking. The doctors will probably know the reasons and everything. But an hour, an hour it took to stop shaking physically. Couldn't stop myself, the natural shaking. After you experience that cold. So the point being, sometimes it may be difficult to have three whistles in a day. But if a woman is capable of that uh, in an environment or in some type of place where she can do that then that is recommended and if she cannot she simply makes wudu for each prayer and prays that is where we'll end for today then inshallah ta'ala we'll start with the next hadith of hamna hamna bint jahsh the next time inshallah ta'ala anybody any questions anything to add They're both under? They're both under 
Then after that, it's. Explanation it isn't any other copies. What is it? New copies separate, separate. Which copy do you have? Uh, that's uh, what about in there? They both 115, and then it goes on to if it's both 115. The only possibility is, I don't remember, but the only possibility is that the two chains, they combine somewhere. So you have this one at the top is Aisha and then Fatima. And the other one at the top is Asma. Somebody narrated from Asma. Somebody narrated from her. Somebody narrated from... It goes down. Maybe they combine somewhere. If those two combine somewhere, then it can be technically considered as one hadith. But that's unlikely. But Allah, there could be some reason like that if there is a reason for it. In some of the copies, it isn't like that. But we'd have to check the proper copies to find out. Anybody else? Can Istihaza handles the Mus'haf? Can she recite? Yeah, we'll get to all those things. But yes, she can make the wudu and she can uh, carry on as usual. The Mustahad is not uh, considered being on the period. They're making jama'ah. So one of them is the imam. Then if they are uh, making a jama'ah, they've decided. So do they have to stand right next to each other or one follows like they, you know. If it's two people, you line up side by side. Uh, it's not the case that the imam takes a half a step forward and the person who's standing on his right is just half a step behind. When you're two people only lined up together, maybe even three people lined up together with the imam in the middle possibly, then in that case you're lined up together. A row is always straight. No, no, they still follow the imam. They line up equally, but they have to follow the imam. Uh, you have to wait for the imam to make the movement down into his... Uh, Rukan, his next movement then you follow behind afterwards like in the prostration it's in the Muatta of Imam Malik when the Imam says Allahu Akbar to go into prostration you shouldn't move until the Imam's forehead touches the ground then everybody else makes their movement forward and the same with the rest of them the Imam says then momentarily after that you're always going to be a moment behind the Imam. And uh, after the two sujood, this is not to do with the... the no, it's okay. Two. So after the two sujood, in general, you know, uh, do, you, do you must sit down and then get up, or can you just get up? This is known as the jalsa to l-istiraha. The, uh, I mean, in straightforward English, the sitting of a break to take a break or to take a slight pause. So when, for example, you've, you've finished your first raka'ah, 
You've done your rakur, you come up, you go down, do your prostration. You come up, you go down, do your second prostration. Then you say, Allahu Akbar, you're going to get up for your second rak'ah. But when you say, Allahu Akbar, do you momentarily sit and then make a second movement to get up? Or coming out of prostration, Allahu Akbar, one movement all the way up without any pause sitting down. That's known as the jalsatul istiraha in the books of fiqh. And there's a lot of discussion about it. Some of the scholars, they say the messenger only started doing that in his older age. This is the opinion of the ones who say that you're not supposed to do it. One opinion of the scholars is you're not, <clears throat> you're not supposed to do it. When you say Allahu Akbar, one movement, stand straight up. There's no pause coming out and then getting up. Straight up. And they say because the narrations about the messenger doing that, there are narrations he did it. But they say examine them carefully. He only ever did that at the end of his lifetime, towards the later years of his life. And they say that shows and that proves, it shows and it proves that he only started doing that not because it was a specific sunnah and an act that you had to do in the prayer, but because of his older age and he needed that two-part movement to come and stand up again, as opposed to when you have more health and fitness and energy, you can just stand straight up. But as you become older and perhaps your body is not as it was, then you require the two-stage movement to get up. They said, look at the narrations. He was in his older age when he started doing that. There's no narrations of him doing it when he was younger. So they say this is therefore a proof. This is not a sunnah you do. This was only for the one who requires it because of old age, etc. You cannot move straight up. So you sit and then make a second movement up. But other scholars, they say no. They say that's your assumption. It's your assumption that just because he only started doing it in his elder age, it must have been because of that. What if it was just a sunnah? The, the, the religion was being revealed over the span of 23 years. So maybe that's when the sunnah came in his older age that you do this jalsatul istiraha. So that's a difference of opinion. There is a, a differences between the scholars as to whether you do it or not. Hmm. Uh, you had something first? You didn't? Hang on. I was a uh, subcontinental English there. I was explaining someone. Go on. <laughs> uh, and uh, basically, they, they were saying that if you have a car and there's an insurance which is obligatory. Did I tell you the story about the guards? The guards. When I was in America in the summer, doing some lectures there, and I was doing a lecture about the story of Musa alayhi salam. And uh, uh, in that story, we began from the start when Musa salam was born and Pharaoh was uh, killing all the baby boys. It's mentioned, uh, Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di said that uh, Pharaoh had guards. Guards who were in and around the city everywhere, keeping an eye on all the pregnant women, finding out where the pregnant women are. And as soon as a pregnant woman gave birth, one of those guards or some of those guards, they would go and kill the child if it was a boy so i was narrating this section of the story in america and after the lecture finished her sister asked a question she put a question forward she said you know and i think she was a new muslim perhaps 
She said, I know about the story of Pharaoh and that he was a tyrant and he was an evil man and all of the corruption that he did. But I didn't know that he was of that level of corruption and that level of a tyrant and that level of power and kingdom and authority that he had gods working for him. Because in the USA dialect, God is pronounced as God. God. So when I was saying he had gods, gods, she was thinking he has gods. He had gods in Egypt everywhere under his control. He had gods that he was controlling and, and they were, he was sending these gods everywhere. And, but they were not gods, they were guards. <laughs> but go on, your question. you could use a taxi and avoid the insurance of a car. A car, so the scholars, they say, I mean, the, the judgment made by the scholars on the issue is that a car has become a worldly necessity. Uh, apart from specific scenarios where it's the opposite. Like if you go to countries such as Singapore. In Singapore, in the whole country, hardly anybody has a car. Hardly anybody owns a car. And we pay 100, 200, 300 pounds tax a year. They pay thousands per year to have a car. So nobody has a car. It's known there. Nobody really has a car. You, you go on your transport or whatever you do. That's the custom and the norm and the life that they have there. Nobody really owns cars. You go to somewhere like the Maldives, the capital island, Mali. The, big, the, the speed limit on the whole capital. Imagine London now. The speed limit in the whole capital of their country is 27 miles per hour. So hardly anybody has a car. They all ride mopeds. So there are certain circumstances in certain places where you may not need a car. But you have to be uh, reasonable about understanding the reality of the situation. You can't just say you can just get a taxi. A person now has a medical emergency at 2 o'clock in the morning or at whatever time it may be. You're not going to wait for a nine-minute Uber, it's seven minutes away, nine minutes away, and then he cancels on you as well. <laughs> Decides, forget it, a higher fare has come in somewhere else. You can't, you can't rely on that always. That isn't a, a suitable kind of way. And uh, the way the world is, I mean, now I was talking about my car getting stuck in those rural areas. You cannot live without a 4 by 4 let alone a car. They all have 4 by 4s over there. That's the only way they can go up and down those hills. And they were the ones coming and dragging everybody out yesterday. That's the way you have to live. You, you go try and telling them in the countryside in these places, don't have a car, let alone a 4x4, four four, not even a car. You need to call a taxi. The next taxi from Uber, when you look, is going to be 37 minutes away. 42 minutes away. And when they find out where this place is, they're going to cancel on you anyway. So you cannot argue the same for cars, the way cars have become these days. As, a, as an almost, you know, it's like your mobile phone. Everybody has a mobile phone. Everybody who can afford a car, they will have a car. For the ease of life and the way that everything works, getting to work and back every day with the school, with all types of things, it's become a necessity of life. It's become a necessity of life. These people who now want to use that argument, tell them, you 
live without a car for a month and tell us. Some people, maybe they do, but that's their circumstances and then they work out their lives in different ways. But you cannot make that comparison to mortgages and houses or make that comparison to uh, uh, um, student loans and these things. These are types of contracts that you're entering into by complete choice. They are contracts you're entering into by complete choice because buying a house, it's not a necessity for you to own a house and to buy a house. It's not a necessity for you to take an interest-based loan and justify that by saying, but you've got a car and you pay insurance on it. These are not uh, uh, very close examples. They say, Al-Qiyas al Fariq. Anybody else? What's the what? Ah. I don't remember if there's any specific rulings about hijama and period. We'll check that. I'll check it before next time, inshallah. It's difficult to clarify because there's lots of differences of opinion about that too. We're going to get to those later on anyway as well. But if now, Dhuhr starts at 12.30, Asr starts at 2.30. A woman can pray her Dhuhr, what time? 12.30, 12.31, 12.32, all the way up until 2.15, 2.20, any time. She's allowed to pray her dhuhr any time, isn't it? Between 12.30 to 2.30. That's the dhuhr time. It's not obligation for her to come to the masjid in the jama'ah. Yes, it's sunnah to pray at the beginning time, but she's allowed to pray any time within the time. So let's imagine one day she's doing something, she's busy or for no reason even. And she hasn't prayed her dhuhr yet and it's 1.30 or 2 o'clock. And then she goes... To make wudu, she's going to pray now. She thinks only half an hour left. She goes to make wudu, etc. And realizes the period has started. So now then, when her period finishes, is she going to have to make up that dhuhr prayer or not? Or before we get to that, is she going to have to make up her asr prayer? Her period starts at 2 p.m. Asr out of the question. But Dhuhr, is she going to have to make up her Dhuhr prayer when the period finishes and she makes her usul or not? What are the fatwas? Yes, here. No, here. Anybody else? What's the fatwa? Put your hands up if you're married. So your wife asks you what you're going to tell her. She has to make it up. And then what if your wife says, but my period started at 2 p.m. that day. And Dhuhr time finishes at 2.30 p.m. If you're telling me I have to make up my Dhuhr, 
it's as good as you telling me I missed an obligation. Up until 2 p.m., had she missed an obligation yet? Because she could have still prayed it any time for the next half an hour yet. Had she missed an obligation? So she's going to say, if you're telling me I've got to make it up, it's as good as you telling me I missed an obligation. But how did I miss an obligation, oh dear husband? So what are you going to say to her? So say, say again, say again. Should. But there's a difference between should and must. So you could say to her maybe, you should pray your dhuhr now that your period has finished, but can you say to her, you must? So it's a difference of opinion. Some scholars, they say, on the argument we've just mentioned, that she didn't miss any obligation yet. She still had half an hour to pray her dhuhr when her period started. She hadn't missed that obligation yet. So then why are you going to, um, uh, going to force her to make up a prayer that she didn't have to pray yet when her period started? So some of them say she doesn't need to make up her dhuhr. But others will say, as you mentioned, but she was now in the time frame of responsibility. Was the responsibility upon her shoulders at 2 p.m.? It was. It had been for 90 minutes by that time. The responsibility was there. Okay, she hadn't done it because she had another half an hour, fair enough. But the responsibility was now active. So when she finishes her period, she should go back and fulfill that responsibility that had started before her period started. But we'll get into more detail about that with the hadith later. Uh-huh. So that could be a type of argument as well if a person dies at 2 p.m. And they hadn't prayed their dhuhr yet. So they're accountable for that dhuhr prayer. They would not be accountable. They still had half an hour left to pray that prayer. So that could be an argument that she doesn't have to make it up. Hmm. Anybody else? No, no, it can be any time. Any time outside of the... I mean, we're going to get to details of how do you work out what is the exact period time of the month, which days to which days, such that you can then say outside of those days is intermenstrual. There are details about how to work out those things. We're going to get to those yet, inshallah. No, in the intermenstrual, you don't have to refrain. She's not on her period. She's allowed to pray. She's allowed, she has to fast. Not allowed. She must pray. And she must fast. So it doesn't have the rulings of menstruation. That's a, a separate type of blood. It does not come from uh, the, uh, the inner sections of, uh, not the womb, but you know, where the period blood comes from. This other blood doesn't come from there. Hmm. Praying to 
towards the end of the time mm. and they made that into a common practice isn't that a bit risky or if for work purposes and those things if that's the best they can do it's permissible it's acceptable mm. uh, you know uh, their lunch hour the way they work they only get their lunch hour from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. or a very short lunch hour from 2.15 to 2.45. So now they can just about pray there, like these days talking about, they can just about pray maybe their dhuhr and then straight after that just about fit in their asr and then lunch hour done. So then no, you have no choice. If that's the only way you can do it, you're fulfilling the obligation. Just make sure you are carefully checking the entry exit times and you're doing it right. The Jum'ah, no, the reward is obviously deficient. If you miss the Jum'ah khutbah, your reward for Jum'ah is not going to be the same as somebody who came for all of the Jum'ah khutbah. And then on top of that, the one who came early for the Jum'ah khutbah, there are narrations about the greater reward of that. But if a person for some reason got delayed and they only caught the prayer, then you have still caught Jum'ah. Even if you only caught the second rak'ah and you get up and make up one rak'ah, you caught Jum'ah. You miss Jum'ah if you get to the mosque and the Imam says, Sami'allahu liman hamida out of his second rak'ah. That's when you walk in and you join now, you've missed Jum'ah. You can join in, but when you get up now, you're going to make up for Dhuhr. Yeah, I, obviously, you know, that's not a, a sunnah as such or, or anything that should be done. That is only in cases of absolute necessity, where the mosque cannot accommodate everybody. It's impossible for them to accommodate the people. So then the scholars, they say, okay, that's an issue of necessity only. Uh, it's not an issue of uh, option and choice. People, a lot of mosques now, they do it just for the choice. Give people the choice. You can come at one, you can come at two, you can come at three uh, to fit their work schedules and whatever. But that isn't the way it's done. It's only uh, if you have no choice, necessity to accommodate the people, you could have a second Jum'ah. Sometimes, uh, sometimes in hospitals, they have like small to medium prayer rooms. Where That's a musalla. You and your colleagues get your dinner break, you go to your Jum'ah, no problem. Another bunch of colleagues from another department, they get their lunch hour uh, after you guys. They go do their Jum'ah, that's possible. That's a musalla. It's not, there's no one fixed Jum'ah time or anything there anyway. And they usually don't have a proper khutbah. They just have a piece of paper that they read every single Jum'ah. Is that... No, it's, uh, I mean, it's valid. Mm -hmm. uh, khutbah is, you know, a khutbah can be uh, two lines long. Khutbah can be a minute long. The Prophet, sallam, the Jum'ah khutbah, it used to be about 15 minutes. That's it. 10 minutes, 15 minutes. That's the Jum'ah khutbah. Not like these days, mashallah, the people half an hour, 40 minutes, and I've heard about people going over an hour. It's not a lecture. Over an hour for the Jum'ah khutbah. The messenger only ever used to do 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Maybe you could push the boat out and say narrations could indicate 20. Push the boat out to the limit, 20 minutes. That's the Jum'ah khutbah. It's 
it's allowed if the imam gives the permission for the person to do it but it doesn't you know look good in the way of the worship for the jumuah if that has to be done it's better he just does it afterwards rather than bringing out another person to do the translation it's permissible for a person to talk if the imam requests it of that person that's allowed but then to make it a fixed thing where the imam says okay i'm giving permission every week for him to talk and translate it doesn't really fit with how the Jummah khutbah is supposed to be it would be better he just translates it afterwards for those who need the translation everybody else can go reciting quran ayats in khutbah al is not sunnah is not a sunnah well according to some of the madhahib if you don't recite an ayah of the quran in the Jummah khutbah it's an invalid khutbah many ayats in the khutbah many ayat it's not a sunnah what do you mean? People say you shouldn't recite many ayat in the khutbah? And Is why? That true? But, uh, why though? What is Continuously it? reciting surahs in the khutbah Jummah. No, there, there is a sunnah about uh, certain chapters of the Quran. You can recite them fully, qaf, etc. You can recite them as a full khutbah. And other khutbahs, of course, there should be ayat, a hadith. A proper khutbah is an admonition for the people. Where is admonition other than in the Quran and the sunnah? It's not the, the emotionally charged speeches they give these days, all about politics and things. Uh, when I used to be at university here in Manchester, in the Ikhwani Mosque, every week the, the guy used to come, different people. They used to start really good. The first two or three minutes after the khutbah al-hajah, and it was ayat of the Quran. He's quoting this ayah and that ayah. And that lasts about two or three minutes. And then after that, that's it, finished. All politics and this ruler and that ruler. And that isn't the way of the Jum'ah khutbah. The Jum'ah khutbah is a reminder and admonition for the people. The messenger used to raise his voice and his face would become reddened, admonishing the people on a Friday. Hmm. Uh, generally, the default or the asal is it is not permissible to purposely delay having children. Uh, you don't do that unless there are specific reasons for it. The rule is you don't do that unless you have exemptions. If there are some exemptions to it, but these kinds of reasons would not be from the exemptions. Saying I want to go to Umrah, I want to go to Hajj. Those are obligations, but uh, there is nothing in the religion telling you delay having children so you can fulfill the obligation of hajj. You fulfill the obligation of hajj when you have the istita'ah generally. But the exemptions are going to be obviously things like medical exemptions. If the uh, scholars always say you've got to have trustworthy, reliable Muslim specialists, doctors, actual doctors and specialists in their fields, working in those fields, and they come and tell you that if you get pregnant, then from all of our knowledge and expertise of these affairs, something's going to, you know, it's expected this will occur, that will occur, you've got this condition, that condition, it's expected you could die if you become pregnant, or, you know, things of that nature. Then yes, it's permissible to uh, delay, or, or to avoid even. No, it's impermissible. Generally speaking, family planning, as they call it, 
That's not uh, Islamic. Islamically, we've been uh, uh, encouraged to have children and to increase your families. Mm. You can delay. They can, you know, if a woman has two or three children consecutively within the space of maybe three or four years, four years she has three children, for example, and it takes a toll on her body, for example, takes a toll on her physically and looking after those three children who are all under the age of four, you could argue certain situations. That would, that's permissible, then the scholars would say, and Sheikh bin Baz does say in that kind of scenario, okay, it's okay, she could maybe, you know, the, the couple could maybe work out that they perhaps try to avoid a pregnancy for a, a short while so that these children can grow up a bit now because it's difficult, three children under the age of four. And it's known at the time of the Prophet as well, the hadith of Jabir, kunna na'zilu. Uh, I forgot the, the wording, but kunna na'zilu, that they used to uh, uh, perform um, coitus interruptus, that the, the ejaculation would occur outside. And that was a means of delaying the pregnancy. <laughs> what else? Just like that, it's not a reason to say, well, that's enough. Just like that isn't a reason. But if they have something more to it, maybe all of those four or five are very close in age, all very young, and it's difficult now looking after them and the tarbiyah of them and those kinds of things, there's got to be something more than just. Hmm. What else? If one can't perform ghusl, then to do what? To make wudu? Here, because the hadith, you know, you have the narrations of Inna Allah yuhibbu an tu'tarukhasuhu. Allah loves that you take the ease that He gives you. So if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided an ease for the women, then they can take it. With the wudu, there's no difficulty really anyway. A man may end up making wudu five times every day. Cannot keep his wudu. So that you may be able to argue isn't a difficulty in the first place. So let her make wudu every prayer. So, hmm. Anybody else? All right, we'll conclude upon that for today. Inshallah ta'ala. In fact, now it's maybe after Ramadan, I think. Huh? Two, three, four. Could be after Ramadan as well. One, two, three, four, eighth of March. No, definitely I won't be here eighth of March. So after Ramadan, inshallah ta'ala.